Good evening. My name is Judy Cooper, and I coordinate the public programs here at the Pratt, and I'm delighted to see uh, so many of you here this evening. Uh, we hear about ISIS in the news every day, uh, mostly in the Middle East, but um, it seems this week we've been hearing about ISIS links here in the United States. And um, I received a phone call uh, several months ago from Stan Becker, and Stan proposed that we um, have this program here this evening with Jim and Debbie Fine, and it's sponsored by the Baltimore Quaker Peace and Justice Committee, and I want to thank Stan very much for being um, such a responsible citizen and for connecting the Pratt to this program. I know you're all going to enjoy it, and I asked Stan to um, do the introductory honors. So, Stan... Thank you. As Judy said, uh, I'm a member of the... We have a joint peace committee between the two meetings of Stony Run and Homewood, and uh, glad to have members from the committee here. And we thank Judy very much for putting us in the program uh, so we could all learn some more tonight. Um, I just finished a book about ISIS, and it wasn't as good as this talk's going to be because it didn't even have any maps. How many of us know where Erbil is on the map? You know, and um, so that's one very nice thing that... Uh, they're going to present us with some maps. If it's, I, I heard them speak at Red Emma's. It was uh, last winter, and was so impressed. I thought uh, the American public lets inform people more widely than folks who were there. So, um, with Judy's help, organize this. So Jim and Debbie uh, were with the Mennonite Central Committee in Erbil for four years, and um, uh, watched things happen there and helped with a lot of activities. They're going to tell us about. And then they've come back and been speaking. Uh, they're members of Society of Friends, and they've been speaking with Friends Committee on National Legislation and other uh, Quaker groups around the country and other groups that invite them. So um, without further ado, we'll have them present for us. They drove all the way down from was it Bristol, Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania, to present to us, which is very nice. Well, we've, we've been doing a fair amount of uh, traveling on the uh, East Coast, so I've begun to think of... Washington in the south and Baltimore and uh, rather Boston in the north as the greater Bristol metropolitan area. So, so we're not really leaving home uh, at all. Uh, Stan, thank you uh, and the Peace Committee and Judy, thank you and the, the, uh, the library for hosting us. Uh, we're delighted to have a chance uh, to come and uh, share some of our experiences and, and uh, insights with you. I hope we'll have a good uh, amount of time for discussion. Uh, I'd be very anxious to hear your comments uh, and concerns, uh, so Deb and I will uh, go through the program without uh, taking, I hope, too much of our time, so there'll be an opportunity for uh, lots of questions and uh, discussion uh, as you would like. I just wanted to begin uh, this evening uh, sharing with you something that I came upon the other day and really struck me in relation to our presentation. And it's really what is not in our presentation, but it is what, in fact, really kept us going for the four years that we were there in Erbil and really keeps us going now. And what I ran across was a commentary by David Zirin. I don't know if any of you know him. He is the sports editor of The Nation magazine. 
And he was reflecting on the experiences in Baltimore of the last week and his uh, affection for the TV series The Wire. Uh, and what happened last week has led him in part to repent of his uh, fascination uh, with The Wire. This really hit home to us because uh, on cold winter nights in Erbil around the kerosene stove, we would watch episodes uh, of The Wire on DVD, and it made us feel very much at home. You know, those, those red brick uh, uh, row houses in Baltimore, just like the ones in Philadelphia, we really felt uh, that we were back at home. And, um, but what David wrote was, uh, and I'll quote him, I've been primarily speaking to black Baltimoreans in grassroots organizations who have, in a state of mainstream media invisibility, been building movements for years to fight poverty, end street violence, and challenge police brutality. And now I'm seeing what the wire was missing, despite its much lauded painstaking verisimilitude. What it was missing was the voices of people organizing together for change. Everyone on the wire seeks individual solutions for social problems. The lone cop, the lone criminal, the lone teacher, the lone newspaper reporter. Yes, it is certainly true that when entrenched bureaucracies battle individuals, individuals lose. But when bureaucracies battle social movements, the results can be quite different. And reading this, I was struck that that is the missing dimension in the mainstream media story about events in Iraq, really since 2003 and, and even before, there is a whole largely invisible cadre of people from every national, ethnic, and religious group who are working together to try to see the emergence of a stable, pacific, pluralistic society. And we, um, working for MCC, had the great privilege uh, of working with so many of those people in our partners in the non-governmental organizations, Kurd and Arab, Sunni and Shia, Muslim and Christian, uh, and also uh, in our uh, close contacts living in the predominantly Christian community of Ain Kawa, essentially a suburb uh, of Erbil. So tonight, their story is missing. Maybe in future we'll find a way to integrate it into uh, the picture that we are more familiar with, the picture about the violence and the chaos and also about uh, attempts to uh, bring th these things to a close. So uh, we're going to talk about the events of June to August 2014 when ISIS advanced uh, first uh, to the town of Mosul, uh, Iraq's second largest city, uh, and then uh, to the villages and towns to the east of Mosul in the so-called Nineveh Plain, the Nineveh of the Bible. Uh, Deb's going to talk to you then a little bit about uh, the stories of two families, uh, two seminary students and their families uh, who were students of hers when she was teaching English language at St. Peter's Seminary in Ainkawa, and then uh, re reflect a little bit about uh, how we can best, how everyone can best respond to the challenge uh, presented by the Islamic State. So... First of all, uh, since I, I don't think anyone put their hand up when uh, Stan asked where Erbil was, uh, it's in northern Iraq. Uh, that's where we lived for the four years. You see, it's not very far from the city of Mosul. 
That represents about an hour and 15 minutes in the car. It's about 45 miles, uh, but the roads are not all that good, and traffic is, uh, uh, is very, very dangerous. Um, and you'll see that Mosul is right on uh, a border area, a population border area, between a predominantly Kurdish population in the red zone and a predominantly Sunni Arab population in the blue zone. Mosul, second largest city in Iraq, as I said, about 1.2 million people, predominantly Sunni Arabs, but with many, many minorities, Kurds, Christians, Yazidis, uh, Shia Kurds, Shia Arabs, but predominantly Sunni Arab. Uh, and then, of course, the central part uh, of uh, the country, uh, colored blue on the map, is the predominantly Sunni Arab area. Baghdad, a very mixed city, everyone was, and still most groups are still present uh, in Baghdad. And then the south, uh, the Shia-dominated uh, south, uh, around the holy cities of Karbala and Nejaf, uh, second only to Qom in the, uh, the Shia pantheon, and Nasuriya and the, the port city of Basra on the south. Uh, Iraq, a country of about 30 million people, land area about the size of California. So relatively uh, contained. Now, in the four years that we were there, we did not get to Mosul. All of our partners and colleagues said Mosul is too dangerous. It was too dangerous for the entire four years that we were there. Weekly car bombings, suicide bombings, armed attacks, and friends said you would be in danger yourself and you would be a danger to the people who were with you. So we never got to Mosul. But interestingly, in the malls of Erbil, and Erbil is a city of more than a million people itself, with some very high-end malls, you could close your eyes and think you were back uh, in the United States, people would come up to us and they would say, we're from Mosul, can we take your picture? And we would say, well, you know, of course, if you want to. They said, it's so strange for us to see foreigners here only a little more than an hour's drive from home because no one would venture into the area where we're living. Uh, some of Debbie's students uh, came from the Christian community of Mosul, much diminished, but until June, still uh, Christians living in Mosul. Uh, we did get to Baghdad once when security conditions uh, were uh, better, so I did have a chance to uh, see quite a bit of Baghdad. And we uh, got to the, uh, the Shia area of Nejef, uh, which is completely safe. Maybe not quite as safe as the Kurdish North. The Kurdish North uh, was and remains very, very safe. Um, some incidents from time to time in the predominantly Shia South, but not many. The dangerous zone is Baghdad, Ramadi, uh, and the central zone. So, to give you an idea of how far the forces of the Islamic State, ISIS or ISIL, or some I've seen increasingly in the um, American media, the Arabic acronym of Daesh that stands for the Islamic State in Syria and Iraq. Uh, coming from Syria, this is the Iraq-Syrian border. Coming from Syria uh, and then initially taking over uh, areas in Anbar province in the south, just uh, west of Baghdad. In fact, one of our partner organizations with whom we were doing uh, agricultural development was doing greenhouses and irrigation canals and kitchen gardens uh, in some of the villages west of Baghdad. They had to stop that work uh, last spring, about February, because the village they were working in was inundated with waters from the Tigris, 
when Islamic State forces seized one of the, de- the dams on the Tigris, uh, opened the floodgates, uh, and an entire area west of Baghdad was flooded. So we could see things uh, beginning to get uh, more dangerous in Ramadi, in the central part of the country, but uh, we were not uh, prepared for what happened in June and August. Again, to give you a sense of where things are, Karakosh is one of the largest Christian villages in the Nineveh Plain. I'll mention it again in just a minute. Mosul again in Erbil, uh, the brown area, Kurdistan. Interestingly, this yellow area was until June and August controlled by the Kurdish forces, but it is part of what is called in Iraq the disputed territories. There are areas in dispute between the central government in Baghdad and the Kurdish regional government, the autonomous Kurdish government based in Erbil. Kurdish forces controlled this area, but this area's eventual disposition was and uh, remains to be determined. Whoops, we went to... Okay, uh, the events of June 9th and 10th, the fall of Mosul. Uh, We thought that we were fairly well plugged in with Christian and Kurdish uh, and Arab contacts in Erbil and and the wider area. Uh, they, nor we, uh, anticipated uh, the stunningly fast fall of Mosul. Uh, In fact, as uh, details have come out, it appears that Islamic State forces, when they entered Mosul in June, did not even intend to take over the city. It appears that their objective was simply to make a demonstration, a show of force, raise the flag, and then withdraw. But they found when about 800 uh, ISIS forces entered uh, Mosul, they found it virtually undefended. The 15 or 20,000 Iraqi forces melted away almost immediately, uh, left their, their weapons, uh, threw uh, undressed, uh, put on civilian clothes, left their uniforms, and the army simply disintegrated. It didn't withdraw, it didn't fight, uh, it simply disintegrated. Shia troops in the government uh, forces did not want to fight for a Sunni city. Sunni troops in the government forces did not want to fight fellow Sunnis for a government that they had become increasingly uh, skeptical of uh, and even hostile towards. So the system simply fell apart without a fight, Suddenly, uh, uh, the Islamic State finds itself in control of Mosul, and it brings more forces in, and they walk away with a treasure trove of American weapons. 50 T-55 battle tanks, 1,500 MRAPs and up-armored Humvees, 40 precision artillery pieces that can land a shell uh, on a dime 25 miles away, uh, more than five or 6,000 small arms and ammunition to, to go with them. And they knock over the Mosul banks and come out with more than $450 million in cash dollars. So it was a huge, huge uh, uh, you know, find for them. They then begin a headlong dash down the Tigris River, uh, taking one town after another until they are finally stopped on the outskirts of Baghdad uh, by... Shia militias galvanized by the uh, leading uh, Shia um, uh, Islamic guide who basically made a call to arms to defend uh, the capital, uh, Iraqi forces, uh, and Iranian advisors. Uh, 
So still, we're sitting here uh, up in Erbil thinking, okay, they're going south. The Kurds have a reputation for being very competent uh, military people. Uh, None of our colleagues and friends really expect that there's going to be any incursion into Kurdish-controlled territory. Well, first, June 25th and 26th, there's a a little bit of a kerfluffle. Uh, The town of Karakosh is subjected to some artillery bombardment. A number of mortar shells fall in Karakosh. And overnight, the 20,000 Christian residents of Karakosh come pouring into Ainkawa and Erbil, where we are, uh, seeking shelter. And we thought, okay, this, uh, they are going to be here. This is, the, this is a, another serious uh, displacement. Um, but it turns out, four or five days later, Kurdish forces reassured them that they were in control of Karakosh, and almost everybody went back. Uh, and uh, for the time being, uh, breathed a sigh of relief. But then on August 7th, it was perfectly clear that the Kurdish forces could not hold the Nineveh plain. They were facing uh, heavily armed, uh, well-disciplined forces, and they had to make one strategic withdrawal after another. Uh, And as a result, in addition to the several hundred thousand that fled Mosul in June and began uh, trickling out ever thereafter, uh, the events of August uh, and June put to flight about 600 or 700,000 people including uh, the Yazidi minority, whom you probably remember reading about last August and September when they were stranded on Sinjar Mountain uh, just to the west of Mosul. And, of course, you've heard the horrific stories, certainly confirmed by uh, our friends and colleagues there, of the wholesale uh, slaughter of men and the kidnapping uh, and rape uh, of women. Uh, And then... Uh, By this time, we and our friends are beginning to wonder if Erbil itself, the capital, is going to remain uh, free of ISIS forces, Uh, and it's beginning to look like a very near thing. But then, truth be told, on the 7th and the 8th, American airstrikes began. Uh, The Kurdish forces were hastily resupplied with heavier weapons, and the advance of ISIS was halted. They had begun to move in very large-scale formations like a conventional army, uh, and Iraq does not offer any ground cover, so suddenly they were very vulnerable to the American airstrikes and to the better-armed Kurds. So although they came within 20 miles uh, of where we were, it was clear that they were not going to be able to approach any further. Uh, This satellite photograph gives you an idea of how close things are Here's Mosul, about 45 miles away. Islamic State forces advanced to the river, the greater Zab, here, just 25 miles from Erbil, uh, and to about 35 miles from Erbil in the south, in the town of Mahmur, and these would have been the two uh, approach routes to put the capital under siege. But as I said, the forces were stopped by a combination of reinforced Kurdish uh, forces uh, and American airstrikes. Uh, You can almost see the Mennonite Central Committee house there in the northeast corner of uh, Ainkawa. Ainkawa used to be separated from Erbil by about five kilometers, but now uh, Erbil has grown into Ainkawa, and that's, that's where we were. Ainkawa, a town of about uh, 20,000 in normal times, 20,000 mostly Christians. Uh, Erbil, uh, a town of about 1.1 or 2 um, uh, million, per, mostly Kurds, but uh, Arab Iraqis uh, and others as well. 
Uh, this is a little hard to see, but it gives you an idea of the population movement that was triggered by the ISIS advance. Uh, here again uh, is Erbil over there, people coming into Erbil from the Nineveh Plain, people coming from in, into Dahuk province, the other northern uh, 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 Kurdish province from the Sinjar mountain area. All told, uh, 600 or 700,000 people uh, put to flight. Okay, well, that, that is the, the overview, and now we'd like to switch the focus to the individual and the family, and Deb is going to tell you a little bit about uh, our friends uh, Bahnam and Hans. Good evening, everyone. It's very, very great to be here, and uh, again, as Jim said, we will definitely welcome your questions uh, when we finish. Um, I, uh, during the four years we were in Erbil, Ankawa, I taught English. Um, one of my jobs was to teach English at a Chaldean seminary. Now, the Chaldean church is the largest Christian church in Iraq. It's among the three churches of the East which actually originated before Rome uh, with the apostolic uh, missionary movement after the resurrection of, of Christ. And uh, the Chaldean church was one of the three churches that were formed at that time. Now, the Chaldean church is now um, connected to Rome. Uh, it is... It, um, is uh, uh, or works with um, the Roman Catholic Church, but they have their own patriarch. Uh, they use um, a form of Aramaic language uh, in their services and in their liturgy. Uh, and one of the real differences with the Roman Catholic Church is that the clergy can marry. Uh, and so these are small differences in, in the church, but there's still quite a bit of connection with Rome. And a lot of the seminarians that I taught will go on to Rome to get uh, graduate uh, education as well. Now tonight I want to talk to you about two of my students. Two students that I met in 2010. Um, and I want to say something, two, two things. I want to point out two things about um, each of these young men. First of all, you would feel very comfortable with these young men. Uh, they are young men with hopes and dreams much as ours. Uh, they have strong ties to their families, and they hope to make a contribution to society. I also want to emphasize the fact that the stories I'm going to tell you are stories that represent two individuals, but they are stories that can be told over and over and over again. Because these two young men and the stories of their families are not unique. Uh, we met countless numbers of people who had similar stories because since the 1980s, Iraq has been plagued by wars and you rarely meet anyone who has not had a loved one or a close family member that has been affected in some way, and usually they have suffered within the family deaths of family members and, and loss of homes and, and so forth. So first of all, 
when I talk to you about Behnam. Um, as I said, I met Behnam in 2010. He was coming to the seminary as a first-year seminary student, and he came from the city of Mosul. He had lived in Mosul all his life with his mother and father and sister, and he had made a decision to become a priest in 2007 when he was 15 years old. In 2007, at the height of the sectarian violence that plagued Iraq after the 2003 war, um, Mosul was in the midst of, of this violence. And after Mass, one Sunday, his priest, Father Ragid, from the Church of the Holy Spirit, was gunned down outside the church. Now, at that point, Behnam decided that he wanted to become a priest so that he could continue the work of Father Agid, much to his parents' uh, disappointment. They were not too sure they wanted Behnam to become a priest. But his parents were great role models for him as well because ever since 2007, a huge number of the Christian population had left Mosul to the point where a congregation of 500 to 600 families, his particular church, had dwindled to about 25 families. And Vietnam's mother and father were among those who were determined to stay. So when I met him in 2010, that was the situation. He was my student for four years, and in 2014, this summer, he and his parents were forced to leave Mosul in spite of their determination to stay. They fled to the town of Karakosh that Jim uh, pointed out to you in the Nineveh Plain. Now, in fleeing to Karakosh, they were relatively safe for two months but then ISIS forces moved into Karakosh, and the entire town was evacuated, fled, as ISIS forces moved in and threatened them. Vietnam and his family had to move, and through the course of their summer, they had to move no fewer than four times to escape the march of ISIS. Today they are in a town that's way up near the Turkish border. Uh, they're in temporary housing, and of course they don't know how long they'll be able to stay uh, in that area either. So uh, Vietnam has continued in seminary, uh, but he told me as uh, I saw him toward the end of our stay, he doesn't think he will ever return to Mosul again. And I hope that that's not the case, but this is his concern. Now, the next person I want you, I want you to meet is Hans. Okay, and Hans, there it is. <laughs> Hans, uh, again, was a seminary student of mine, but he was from Baghdad. And when I met him in 2010, he and his family were living in Baghdad. His dad was a high school math teacher. And as you can see in this picture here, he has quite a large family, brothers and sisters in various stages of their education and work. 
and an aunt who is also an educational administrator. Well, in October of 2010, actually Halloween night, Hans's church was attacked and 50, 50 people from the church were killed. At this point, Hans's family decided they were going to leave and they were going to move to Karakosh where they had family. They sold their home, they moved to Karakosh, and they began building this house in Karakosh. This was a temporary house they were staying with when we visited them. And they moved into that house in 2013. Well, as we have told you, the summer of 2014, everyone fled Karakosh. And so Hans and his family had to flee as well, and they became homeless, internally displaced people, and they came to the town of Ankawa. And now they continue to remain in temporary housing. And so these are the stories of two people, but these stories are repeated time and time again. Now, I want to talk to you a little bit about the relief effort that went into um, action after the... Um, after the, uh, in, all of the refugees, all of the internally displaced people came into Ankawa, came into the northern area of the, of the country around the hook. This is a churchyard, okay? And actually, this is the church that we attended when we lived in Ankawa. It's a Chaldean church, and as you can see, Every square inch of this churchyard is covered with tents. August 7th and 8th, the population of Ankawa doubled with people coming in from the villages in the Nineveh Plain. Now, most of these people are from the town of Karakosh. And there are 200 families encamped in this churchyard alone. You need to compound that over the whole city and you'll get an idea of the magnitude of the influx of internally displaced people. But people kept their hopes and their will and their spirit high. As you can see, this woman is smiling as she gives her baby a bath in a styrofoam ice chest. This is one of the ladies that lived on the grounds of the church in uh, Ankawa. Whoops, sorry. Now, this collage gives you an idea of some of the relief efforts that went into play at this time. And this is one of the things that Jim was talking about. The, the fact that there are people on the ground, many of them are partners, that are committed to holding the situation together, committed to making things better. And our partners rallied around the situation and put all of their strength and energy into helping the people who were coming into the city of Ankawa. Here is the bishop of the Chaldean Church, Bishop Bashar. He actually has a map in his hand, and he was helping to clean out a building that was under construction that was owned by the church 
that was cleaned out to house the refugees. And you can see here a family is moving into that building as the um, others members of the church, this is the architect of the building, uh, and a, a workman worked to put in showers and toilets. Uh, this is the vice rector of the seminary where I worked, and he was recruited to help build, develop clinics in the neighborhood, and uh, our organization, MCC, was able to help with um, cash grants that help build these toilets and provide medicines. And this effort is continuing. This is a sister who ran a home for girls up in north of Karakosh. She evacuated her entire girls' home, August 7th and 8th, brought them down to Ainkawa, and they remained there for, from um, August all the way until around December. They have been able to return. Uh, this is another encampment very close to our house, and this is a group of people receiving uh, aid from uh, relief organizations. This happens to be the Mennonite Central Committee. So efforts were made and continue to be made. This is an encampment of Yazidis in the north in Dehuk. And as you can see, the encampment is a little less developed than the, the encampments in Ankawa. Uh, the Yazidis suffered a great deal, even more than the Christian minorities in this last crisis. And this is a group of Yazidis whom we worked with who the day after the um, evacuation of these villages were immediately able to begin to um, distribute aid. A little boy with a, a packet of uh, food. Oops. And then this continued into the winter months this is a distribution of um, kerosene and heating fuel. And now, this is the same churchyard. This is the church where we attended. And as you can see, those original tents have been replaced with United Nations tents. The big organizations finally got their act together, but it was the local organizations that were able to respond first. And now we understand those tents have been replaced with trailers. And so, you know, they, but those people are still there. They have not been able to return. And so the situation continues, and it continues to be critical. Uh, many of the children have not been able to go to school. Uh, and uh, the, you know, the conditions, even though they're a little better than they were in the 100-plus degree heat at the end of August, have not improved. And who knows what the future holds. Uh, Jim's going to talk to you a little bit about how one responds to this situation. Well, what, uh, what, what do we do? What can be done? I think it's first uh, important to take a look at where the forces of the Islamic State come from. Uh, what has given uh, fuel to this phenomenon that's really been with us for quite a long time? Uh, you know, you could do uh, dissertations on the deep roots, on the theology, on the psychology, and the politics that has led a movement towards the religious right in the Middle East for the last two generations. 
Uh, we were first uh, in the Middle East in 1967 when we were students at the American University of Beirut in Lebanon, which was then an international and Middle Eastern university. Everybody was there. And in dormitory conversations with Arab and Iranian uh, uh, and other students, the Islamic right was almost a laughingstock. None of the young people of that generation of the late 1960s were infatuated with conservative Salafist uh, Islam at all. It was seen as an anachronism. Uh, the student generation were secular Democrats. Uh, they wanted to see uh, secular regimes in their countries uh, that would uh, uh, d bring development uh, and modernization. In the last 40 years, that trend has taken a real dip and Islamic conservatism has gained, uh, has gained uh, ground. Why? In large part because the secular regimes were not successful. They were not successful in meeting the needs of the people or in establishing uh, the Arab countries' uh, uh, place uh, in uh, the international uh, arena. So people lost faith in secular politics, and they began to uh, think that uh, only a return to uh, the principles and the practices of uh, uh, an imagined uh, original version of Islam could bring about uh, their political and social salvation. Um, you could get into a taxi uh, almost anywhere in the region by 1990 and have drivers tell you the Arab world is weak because we have strayed from the principles of Islam. Only when we return to those principles will we be able to secure our rights uh, and take our place uh, in the international community. And then, against that background of the, the deep trends uh, in the region, uh, the U.S., the Saudis, and the Pakistanis uh, decided in Afghanistan in the period 1979 to 92 that it would be a good idea to use the Islamic right against uh, the pro-Soviet regime in Kabul. So we uh, funded uh, and uh, facilitated the Mujahideen, uh, the radical Islamic fighters who fought against uh, uh, the secular uh, leftist uh, Afghan government. Uh, same thing uh, then further in 2004 and 2008. At this point, although al-Qaeda had gotten a big boost uh, from the U.S. support in Afghanistan, uh, the U.S. was not supporting it in Iraq, but it was strong enough to turn around and once again uh, bite U.S. forces, fought the Shia-led government, fought the U.S., and had an opportunity to gain quite a bit of strength, quite a bit of uh, combat experience. Uh, it emerged uh, stronger as a result of the sectarian violence that followed the American invasion uh, of Iraq in 2003. And then along comes the Syrian civil war in 2011, uh, and it's still going on. And there, uh, remnants of the Iraqi Islamist insurgency uh, went across the porous border into Syria and began fighting the Assad regime. Well, that was not at all uh, against uh, the interests uh, as so conceived of the U.S., of Turkey, and Saudi Arabia, so the Saudis and other Gulf Arabs and the Turks, with American acquiescence, if not more, 
all begin to facilitate the growth of the Islamic, what became the Islamic State fighters in Syria. Uh, wealthy Gulf Arabs uh, donate millions of dollars to the cause. Uh, people inspired by the jihadist movement gather from all over the world. They arrive in Turkey. Turkey is uh, happy to allow them to enter uh, Syria uh, and they, because they're fighting the regime of Bashar al-Assad. Well, then uh, Iraq further deteriorates. Uh, there's a loss of support, uh, any hope at all, in the Iraqi government in Baghdad and more Iraqi Sunnis are encouraged to join the ranks of the extremists. Uh, the border between Syria and uh, Iraq uh, ceases to exist for all pro uh, intents and purposes, and we see the fall of Mosul and uh, the onslaught into the Nineveh Plain and down the Tigris River. Uh, so suddenly, the forces that uh, uh, the U.S. and its allies were encouraging uh, slip over uh, the border and get out of, completely out of control. And the U.S. response has been airstrikes. Here's uh, the, the chart uh, as of a, a month ago of where the strikes are. Kobani, uh, Islamic State forces were still making inroads uh, in, uh, um, in northern Syria as late as November. Uh, and, of course, many around uh, the Mosul area. Uh, but airstrikes uh, are not going to solve the problem. Uh, what do we need to do? The problem is essentially political. Uh, the solution has to be predominantly diplomatic. Uh, and everyone from President Obama on down will say there's no military solution. But still, we continue to put all of our time and energy and all of our resources into the military uh, dimension, which everyone agrees is no solution. Uh, inside Iraq, the basic agreement between Sunni Arab, Shia Arab, and Kurdish Sunni, Sunni Kurd, uh, that is needed to put Iraq back together again or to agree to have a loose confederation of autonomous zones, that basic political agreement is as far from achievement now as it was back in June. Uh, in the region, uh, we still have Iran and Saudi Arabia fighting proxy wars. Uh, there are local conflicts at the root of these, but in Yemen and in Syria, uh, Iran and the Saudis uh, are on the other side, especially in Syria. And the Israel-Palestine conflict continues with the periodic blow-ups in Gaza and the specter of uh, scores and scores uh, of dead civilians uh, in that conflict. Um, I was struck by this comment, certainly very true, from the, the, the man who's now the Saudi interior minister as well as the crown prince. If you stop five but create 50, that's dumb. And that is so much what our military response is doing. Um, it, it has indeed uh, stopped the advance of the Islamic State forces. Uh, it has in part helped to retake some areas that uh, uh, the Islamic State controlled but it's not going to be able to do much more than that. Uh, you may remember back uh, in the late fall, there was an announcement from the Pentagon that the assault to retake Mosul was going to start in the spring, and Kurdish forces were going to uh, be an important part of that offensive. Well, the, the Kurds' representative uh, in Washington, uh, Bayan Sami Abdul Rahman, uh, said she hadn't heard about that. No one had spoken to the Kurds, and she pointed out, I think quite rightly, that A, you know, from a practical military perspective, there were no Iraqi forces that were ready 
to take part in an operation like that. And more importantly, and I think the Kurds are certainly right about this, the Sunni community in Mosul and in the Sunni Arab areas of Iraq are not yet ready uh, to see a fight against ISIS because they still have no faith that the Shia-dominant government uh, in Baghdad will represent their interests, protect them, uh, or be anything worse uh, than the devil at their doorstep now. Uh, ISIS is losing uh, support uh, the longer it stays in the areas it controls because its rule is brutal uh, and and capricious. Uh, But nonetheless, people still cannot see uh, an alternative that they can affirm. Another dimension, uh, this is a remarkable statement from uh, Secretary of State John Kerry, uh, highlighting the importance of addressing the Israel-Palestine conflict, uh, but the venue is significant. The statement was made to Middle Eastern ambassadors on a reception on the occasion of Eid al-Adha. It was picked up by some of the media, but largely obscured, certainly not part of the administration's uh, day-to-day message. Interestingly, the policies that the U.S. could pursue to reverse course uh, over the, from the last uh, 14 years uh, are not entirely orphaned within the American foreign policy establishment. This is probably the last biggest uh, expression of that alternative view uh, that emphasizes politics and diplomacy. Uh, probably the last uh, major expression of that point of view from within the foreign policy establishment. Congress uh, uh, created a commission, the Iraq Study Group, uh, in order to recommend uh, what should be done at the height of the sectarian violence in Iraq. And um, um, Jim Baker and Lee Hamilton uh, came up with uh, much more than I I think uh, Congress intended, uh, stressing the importance of building a regional security apparatus that includes Iran Uh, to use the regional powers to help solve instead of exacerbating local differences uh, and to renew uh, commitment to a comprehensive Arab-Israeli peace, recognizing the ideological impact uh, that uh, the continuing conflict has on Muslims throughout uh, the world, but especially uh, in the Middle East. Very sensible from within the heart of the establishment, but we are still a long way from uh, accepting recommendations like that. Um, Just a a final illustration to show how much of a global problem this has become. Uh, The jihad uh, has become a cause celeb, an international uh, magnet that has uh, drawn disgruntled uh, and uh, uh, despondent uh, youth from all over the world, uh, many uh, from uh, some of the most liberal Arab countries, Tunisia, uh, and many from Europe and and some from the United States, and from Russia, really, it's uh, Chechnya but an international phenomenon. This, an example of the political debate here in this country over the direction of American Middle East policy uh, that gives um, uh, importance to the role of the U.S.-Iranian negotiations, or more properly, the permanent members of the Security Council plus Germany uh, negotiations with Iran over the nuclear issue, uh, pro and con uh, for those negotiations. Uh, And I think, um, uh, to quote... uh, not exactly uh, someone often in the favor of Mennonites or Quakers, but to quote Henry Kissinger, 
who in this case I think uh, has hit it right on the head. As long as the regional power, Iran, and the global power, the United States, remain at odds, the region will remain in turmoil. Uh, local, uh, uh, that's the end of Kissinger, now this is the gloss, I mean local uh, forces will be supported or discouraged by the regional and the outside actors. Local differences will be magnified by the, the regional and by the, the U.S.-Iranian uh, differences, and we will have, as we see in Yemen and Syria and Lebanon, uh, continued quasi-proxy wars uh, among the, the contestants. Uh, just uh, two days ago from uh, the Wall Street Journal, uh, U.S. opinion on the Iran nuclear deal, a deal which has not been concluded yet. There is a framework agreement, but getting from a framework agreement to a final agreement uh, is still quite a, a reach. We'll see if it happens. But if it does, as you can see, there are more people predisposed to accept such an agreement than there are opposed to it. But the, the big uh, block there are the undecideds or the people who simply feel they don't have enough information to know whether this is something they should support or not. And I, I think uh, what is clear is that as the U.S.-Iran relationship goes, so goes the region. It's going to be very difficult to put Iraq or Syria or even Yemen back together again as long as this rivalry uh, continues. So that's more or less uh, some of our experience, uh, the burden of that experience uh, to our thinking. And we would be happy for your uh, questions, your comments, uh, uh, and thank you very much. Good evening. Very good presentation. Can you discuss about the involvement of the uh, Russian Federation and uh, President Putin? What do they get out of this? You only mentioned it briefly about Czechia. I was wondering about our na the neighbor to the north. Well, what, are, how are they, what are they looking at? Well, I'm going to preface this. Thanks for that question. It's a very important question. I'm going to preface my answer uh, by disavowing any special expertise that reaches quite that far. Uh, so uh, I, I, would not, uh, uh, I would not purport to have an exhaustive answer to that question. Russia's interests are somewhat different. Um, Russia can be persuaded, I think, to become part of a regional security pact. Of course, Russia has been very reluctant to uh, oppose the regime of Bashar al-Assad. The Russians would like to see themselves as mediators. Uh, the Russians uh, have fairly good relations uh, with Iran in the wake of the uh, progress towards an agreement. Uh, Russia has uh, stepped up its uh, relations with Iran. Uh, I think Putin could choose to either be a spoiler uh, and try to uh, take advantage uh, of uh, Western failures or shortcomings, or the Russians could be pulled into uh, a regional uh, security pact. They, uh, as the Chechnyan example uh, suggests, have an interest in tamping down Islamic extremism. They have an interest in normal relations with Iran, with Iraq, uh, and they have an interest in seeing the chaos uh, in Syria come to an end. Uh, I think all of the actors, uh, the Iranians, the Americans, the Russians, uh, and the local parties, uh, have both a better and a worse side, uh, and they could uh, be brought to greater conflict uh, among themselves, 
or there are enough common interests and enough common sense uh, extent uh, throughout uh, those parties that they could be brought together. I don't think it's an insurmountable thing. The Cold War really is over in the Middle East. Uh, it was uh, tragic for the region, by the way, in forcing people to take sides. Uh, but uh, it's, if things go badly uh, in the Iran-U.S. negotiations, I think Russia probably will take advantage and will not play the constructive role that it might otherwise. Hi, my name is Hans, and I work with an international development and relief agency as well, and I, I want to thank you for the presentation. Um, I have lots of questions. There's lots of debate. It's a very complex situation as the geopolitical um, structure is changing in the Middle East, as political Islam is on the rise. Uh, a couple questions. Um, in allying, uh, in a potential alliance with Iran, and um, as, we're, as ISIS is being driven back... Um, in, in Syria, um, we're seeing some of the other rebel factions coming together and having a greater force um, to topple the, the al-Assad regime. What do you think the implications of that will be if we have an al-Qaeda-type uh, rebel faction toppling uh, the Syrian regime? That's one question. The other question is, where do you see Jordan uh, in all of this as uh, a staunch U.S. ally and one of the most stable countries in the region who recently suffered a uh, loss of, of the pilot that was uh, murdered mm -hmm. brutally mm -hmm. by uh, IS forces. Okay. Thanks. Well, thank you. First, um, I think that uh, it is very unlikely that we would see an Islamist, uh, an extremist Islamist government in Damascus. Uh, the Syrian forces, with support from Iran, are almost certainly strong enough to prevent that from happening. If it were to happen, I think it would be a disaster for the entire region. Um, but the, the task really is to tamp down that violence and to, keep, to come up with some kind of a, a modus vivendi, at least an interim stage, that would allow uh, people to rebuild and, uh, and return. Um, more, more likely is a negotiated agreement once the U.S. and Turkey uh, come to the conclusion, as I think they will be forced to, that the Assad regime, as bad as its crimes against humanity are, simply cannot be toppled, and trying to do so will only increase uh, the violence uh, and, and the deaths. Um, that requires the support, first of all, of Iran, and secondly, of Russia, who have... Uh, been very loath to see uh, pressure mount against Assad. I mean, I, I don't think there's any, any uh, solution worth looking for that isn't some kind of an interim compromise. Maybe Assad's left in power, but he's also indicted by the International Criminal Court. Wouldn't be the first head of state to, to have that happen. Uh, and in 10, 20, 30 years, people can move beyond this, what has been one of the, probably the most horrific event uh, in the region uh, since, since World War II. Uh, and I'm sorry, your second question? I, 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 oh, Jordan. Jordan, uh, Jordan, for the last 40 years, has been treading water. Jordan treads water in fear that the instability uh, around it will come in and overwhelm it. Uh, they are always worried, they are always nervous that uh, the forces uh, inside Jordan that want to promote uh, a radical change could get out of hand. Uh, on the other hand, uh, they have the advantage of their population seeing 
the chaos all around them. And that is a very powerful deterrent at the grassroots level to persuade people not to rock the boat. They look at Iraq, they look at Syria, they look at Lebanon, and they think Jordan is the best place to be. We don't want to, uh, to ruin that. Uh, the U.S. plays a very uh, pivotal role in Jordan. So far, that has not been uh, a damaging or, or counterproductive role. It provides uh, economic support. It provides uh, uh, military equipment. It provides uh, aid uh, for Jordan's uh, overwhelmed resources uh, in dealing with uh, the refugee influx. Uh, not too likely to change, Deb. I also want to add, though, that Jordan is very hard-pressed right now because of the influx of both Syrian and Iraqi refugees, and uh, as well as, of course, a huge population of Palestinians, uh, that really this, this increase of refugees has put a lot of strain on the country, and uh, this, is, this is a big concern. Hello, I'm Debbie with Baltimore Quakers Peace and Justice. This question is for Debbie. You spoke about the the young priests that would flee from time to time. When when they would flee, when they would leave, what would happen to the churches that were behind? Was someone? Okay, uh, I, let me just clarify. Oh, go, you go, oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Um, first of all, the priests themselves have have not fled. Their families became internally displaced in Iraq. But um, Behnam has continued at seminary. And in fact, Hans is now a priest himself. Uh, Both uh, have remained within the Chaldean church. Now, Hans has come to the United States, but he came to the United States earlier His family, though, remain as internally displaced refugees in Iraq. And you also spoke about there were three um, different uh, Christian um, uh, places of worship that won the apostolic. And what were the other two? Okay, the Chaldean. Chaldean. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then um, the Chaldean, the Syrian Catholic, and then the Assyrian Church. There are three churches of the East principal churches of the East. There's some smaller groups as well. Melkites in uh, uh, Israel and Palestine and so on. There, yeah. uh, thank you. Mm, two questions. First, uh, Jim, you said uh, the U.S. bombing stopped the ISIS uh, advance, but I think you said in this talk or the previous one that the bombing since then is, may have been counterproductive. You showed a map with 500-plus bombs or something in Mosul. Uh, could you comment on that? Uh, what should the U.S. be doing? They don't want to put troops on the ground sort of thing, and so what are you left with except bombs or giving people guns and things, which apparently also helped with the Kurdish uh, resistance. But then the second question is, um, you mentioned a diplomatic solution is needed, and Quakers are good at uh, working on that. But my understanding is that diplomacy is uh, probably not going to work with ISIS, that uh, mm. they don't quite think in those ways in terms of what, the, at least from their history. So could you comment on how diplomacy can work in a situation where ISIS is advancing wherever it can? Thank you. Well, thanks, Dan. And your two questions, of course, are very closely related. Um, from you know, a, a ordinary perspective, uh, 
it's hard to see how things can be resolved without the use of some military force used uh, hopefully in uh, ways consistent with international law as a, a kind of police force. Uh, I think you're right that the Islamic State's hard core is not going to be amenable to negotiation or withdrawal, but I think the hard core can be separated from so many now fellow travelers who simply don't see anywhere else to go or anyone else, any other power uh, that can better uh, protect uh, and guarantee their interests. That's the task of diplomacy at the internal level. People who have been terribly traumatized by violence uh, and uh, mutual suffering are going to have a very hard time rebuilding the, the level of trust that's needed uh, in any social relationship. Uh, but that trust can be built through encouragement from the outside uh, parties who are in fact uh, uh, patrons of the various groups inside. Uh, and it's got to be an inside-outside strategy where those groups that have influence with the inside factions have to agree that they are going to try to bring the factions together, not drive them apart. And then you will see, I think, uh, support for ISIS outside you know, a, a relatively you know, diminished number of uh, hardcore fighters. That support will evaporate. And then any police or military operation to retake territory will be much less bloody, much less costly. Uh, and, I mean, that, that to me is, is a best-case scenario, the best that we can, can envision or hope for. But it's critically important to get the political and the diplomatic bit right, or the military is worse than futile, it's counterproductive. Uh, and, uh, I mean, I think it's hard to, to judge uh, where that balance has been so far. Clearly, uh, the, return, the, the airstrikes have been publicized by ISIS. They see it as a recruiting tool. And I'm sure it has prompted uh, some young people uh, to join the ranks of, uh, of ISIS to oppose the great Satan. Uh, and it's shown, uh, it, it's, it's read into the, uh, uh, the ISIS narrative uh, that these are jihadis fighting a holy war against the crusaders. Uh, the less that that narrative is plausible, uh, the easier it's going to be, the less force will have to be used to reestablish reasonable <laughs> government in those areas. Uh, a minimum of airstrikes which is certainly uh, required. Uh, everyone that goes bad, everyone that produces civilian casualties uh, is uh, uh, to the benefit uh, of the Islamic State forces. Um, the least amount of force that can be used uh, is certainly the, the best way to go. Tikrit, for example. Tikrit has so-called uh, so been liberated. Uh, a coalition of Iraqi government, Shia militia uh, forces with several different Shia militia with some airstrikes from the United States with a lot of advice and uh, possibly some uh, troops on the ground from Iran have retaken to Crete. Uh, 
to Crete is a wasteland. It's a ghost town. Uh, it's been largely destroyed. The population is afraid to move back. There have been acts uh, of retaliation by the Shia militia. Uh, it's no solution at all. ISIS is no longer there, but neither is anyone else. Because there's been no political agreement, there's been no thought given to what comes after. How is this area governed? Who will govern it? Who will have the confidence and the, the capacity to govern it? Uh, and uh, who will assure the people uh, that they will be safe? Uh, so terribly bloody battle, uh, many uh, lives lost, mostly combatants, but some civilians. And yes, but it's, it's like the Vietnam era, we had to destroy the village to save it. That's, that's the, the same dynamic that's taking place here. Uh, good to see you back in uh, Baltimore. Uh, I, it, my first question, and I'll, I'll ask the questions and please uh, consider answering them. Uh, have I missed you on NPR? Have I missed you on CNN, and have I missed you on MSNBC? That's the first uh, uh, question. The second uh, uh, question uh, is about, I'm glad to hear that, you're, that uh, there's this suggestion we have to work with Iran. There's just, it, it, you know, we have to do that. That's so important. Uh, I was so embarrassed when our president cuts off his, uh, his trip to India to hustle over to Saudi Arabia and go there and bend in knees. It's just, it's so embarrassing that we would support this retrograde government. We could go on and on about women can't drive. They have more beheadings probably than ISIS, et cetera, et cetera. So in, in, I'm just curious of your opinions with climate chaos and the movement towards solar energy, wind energy, can that in some fashion delineate that we don't have to go to bed with Saudi Arabia? The last thing is uh, Phyllis Bennis just spoke at the mm -hmm. Maryland United for Peace and Justice conference, and she made some of the similar points that you were, were making. But one thing she said to, to us in the room, because this is Maryland United for Peace and Justice, we have a very important task here to deal with Ben Cardin. Mm -hmm. Ben Cardin is trying to muck up the diplomacy with Iran. He's also trying to actually get legislation passed that it's a criminal act to promote BDS, and to me, if we don't settle that conflict with Israel and Palestine and Iran and get Saudi Arabia off the side, we can't do anything. So I, uh, you have any comments about this? And some of us in, in the peace groups in Baltimore have already been challenging Ben Cardin on some of these policies that he's been taking. So any comments? I'd appreciate it. Well, the, the first question is very easy and very short answer. No, no, and no. <laughs> um, and, and in fact, I mean, we were... Uh, we were pretty disappointed with mainstream media where we, nothing quite like that, but we did get some interviews. The only television interview that from our perspective was constructive and worthwhile was done by a little Lancaster, Pennsylvania TV station, a uh, wonderful producer uh, and reporter who listened to us, uh, reported what we told her, and also gave a nice boost to MCC relief efforts, uh, showing the relief kits that people were putting together. Philadelphia media, Bucks County media that interviewed us, we told them the same things, but the same story didn't come out. Their sole storyline was slightly batty older couple 
unperturbed by the advance of head-chopping jihadis, you know. And that, that, was, that was the only story they could hear and wanted to tell. In fact, at one point, one of the Philadelphia stations flatly uh, contradicted us. We said, uh, no, we weren't afraid at any time. Uh, we were surrounded by friends and supporters. We knew that people would put themselves at risk to protect us. And as it turned out, nobody needed any protecting. Uh, but then the reporter comes on and does a voiceover. Uh, Jim and Deb Fine were petrified as the Islamic State forces advanced on Erbil. I mean, totally the opposite of, I mean, not just, mis- you know, anyway. Um, so, no, not a lot of mainstream media uh, uh, connection. Uh, but um, um, then, uh, oh, um, uh, Saudi Arabia and, and certainly very important. And the Iranians uh, have different factions as well. They are having quite a discussion over the, uh, the prospect of putting an end to 40 years of hostility with uh, the great Satan, uh, but absolutely critical to how the, the region goes. Uh, and again, absolutely critical that the Saudis be brought to the point where they can accept a proportionate share of Iranian influence in the region. Uh, and it is ironic that we support Iran against uh, Saudi Arabia uh, when from a, you know, strange as it may sound to some, from a feminist perspective, Iran is much further advanced. The percentage, the percentage of women uh, who uh, attain advanced degrees, who are active in uh, uh, commerce and industry and the professions is much higher uh, in Iran. Uh, actually, there was a, an Iranian-American reporter on the NPR just last week saying, who had grown up. She was, I think, 15 when the revolution took place. And she said, you know, as long as you put on the hijab, you could do anything you wanted. You just couldn't go out without the hijab. Uh, and, you know, she's part of probably a, min- a majority of Iranians who hope that that will change in, in the future. But Iran is not nearly as repressive a society uh, of women as Saudi Arabia is. Uh, and I think, yes, uh, if we can disabuse ourselves uh, uh, of the use of fossil fuel to any uh, degree, uh, it will help to bring about uh, long-term constructive change uh, in Saudi Arabia. And finally... Yes. Yeah. Well, I, uh, yeah, right. I had mentioned uh, earlier the need to settle Israel-Palestine. I mean, the, the administration in the first uh, uh, Obama administration made some uh, feints and starts, but as soon as it met opposition, it uh, pretended it hadn't started and turned around and went the other way. Uh, ben Cardin uh, is actually better than Menendez. Uh, and Menendez's uh, uh, departure as chair of the Foreign Relations Committee uh, has made possible what could prove to be a problem or could be, as one of the analysts from uh, uh, Americans for Peace Now said, one of the most uh, remarkable feats of political jiu-jitsu uh, in recent memory. If, uh, I mean, if that compromise bill that uh, foreign relations voted on 19 to 0 ever sees the light of day and there's a Republican revolt against the leadership so it may not but if it does it has changed the issue from congressional oversight to the merits of the agreement itself it's harder to say you know Congress just shouldn't have any more role in this they'll get a chance down the line to remove the legislative sanctions can't do anything 
in the end without them, but the executive branch can do an awful lot on its own under existing law. Uh, it's hard to say, you know, Congress, we don't want any part of that. Because I remember what we were saying um, you know, eight years ago, nine years ago, let's bring Congress into this, let's not let the administration make all the running. So instead of saying to Congress, you have no role at the front end of this, there's been an acceptance of that, but I think it will be much harder to persuade people to stand up against this agreement because everything that has come out so far looks as though it will be a very reputable, very strong agreement. Uh, I think it will increase the chances that it is approved uh, and that even if it comes to it, it would be much easier for a presidential veto, much harder for Congress to override that veto than it would have been on a resolution where the issue is, should Congress have a role? So we may have uh, reached a somewhat better place, but the ball is still in spin. Strong opposition to any rapprochement with the United States in Iran. Strong opposition in the United States to rapprochement with Iran. Uh, it is certainly uh, uh, the most important political struggle, I think, uh, for the future of Iraq as well as the rest of the region to, uh, to engage now. You gentlemen covered quite a bit of what I wanted to, to bring up. I mean, actually, great questions. Uh, I just wanted to look a, li a little bit more from the domestic side in terms of what pressure can be brought to bear. As you mentioned, the key to that region, the, the two superpowers are going to be the United States and Iran coming to some sense of rapprochement or something approaching rapprochement. But considering the, the intractable forces on Capitol Hill, what kind of forces can be brought to bear to bring, put pressure on those folks that, I mean, beyond just the, the agreement on Iran's nuclear program, you're thinking longer term. And then one other question, if, uh, if you would choose to, is in terms of stability, you alluded to it when you mentioned that the fall of Assad in Syria could be worse catastrophic, just as in many ways the fall of Saddam Hussein in uh, Iraq let the genie out of the mm -hmm. bottle mm -hmm. there. So, so again, what kind of forces, what kind of things can be done here in the United States, in Washington, lobbying on Capitol Hill? Mm -hmm. uh, what, what kind of things can be done to mm -hmm. put pressure where, where it seems they're almost yeah. intractable yeah. and, and yeah. immovable? If that doesn't happen, yeah. I don't think Iran's going to back up because Many people's frame of reference dates back that 40 years. But if yeah. you recall, the United States had a lot to do with putting that in place. There was something called Savak. There was somebody called the Shah. Absolutely. And there's a lot of people there that don't forget that. Absolutely. Well, well thank you uh, for that. I'm not terribly pessimistic on uh, the battle uh, over U.S.-Iran policy. If you look at the graph, it's not that discouraging. More people approve the agreement than oppose it, and there's just that big uh, column of undecideds or don't know enough. And that is despite the concerted efforts uh, of the lobby that opposes any rapprochement with Iran, uh, led uh, by the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, who were able, and as a former lobbyist myself for the Friends Committee on National Legislation, I have to envy this, who were able to put 15,000 people on Capitol Hill the day after Netanyahu spoke in Congress. That's people power. That's lobby power. 
And the answer to that is lobby power from the other side. And I have been very pleased to see that there is a broad movement uh, in support of the uh, U.S.-Iran agreement who want to give diplomacy a chance, who see it as the best way to prevent a nuclear-armed Iran and the best way to uh, avoid another war in the Middle East. So I think the forces of reason and a little bit of cautious optimism uh, are not doing badly against uh, the, uh, the narrower interests who are opposed to this agreement, but uh, they speak with a very loud voice, uh, and they have very deep pockets. That's the way the American system works. Uh, and uh, those of us who think that that's uh, leading us to hell in a handcar need to do everything that we can to uh, work the other side of the street uh, and call across to our now opponents on the other side saying, hey, you know, we don't think you're doing anything that's going to help you in the long run or help any of us. I mean, there is a battle for hearts and minds here, and I think you can't be terribly pessimistic about our progress to date. Uh, so uh, it's more of the same. It's, you know, the, those, those silly little uh, email lobby things add up Congressional offices keep track of who's clicking the button and sending uh, the message to uh, let diplomacy work or, or sending the message to uh, let the bombs fall. It makes a difference. So uh, I, I think what people have been doing has had a, an impact. Uh, um, so, And then uh, the second question was about uh, Syria again. Syria, yeah. Syria yeah. You know, it, it, it's really hard to see longer term, but I, I think a solution involves uh, a negotiated settlement, a ceasefire in place, maybe a sort of de facto partition of Syria for a period of time. Uh, Iranian and, and Russian support uh, uh, pressure on the Syrian regime to come to terms to stop the barrel bombs and stop the attack. Uh, but it doesn't solve anything long term. It initiates uh, an interim period. And maybe that interim period is 10, 20, 30 years. I'll tell you why I'm optimistic long term. Uh, living in the region, you're able to believe that the tide is beginning to turn. Uh, but it's like, uh, I don't know about the Chesapeake, but it's like the Delaware River. The tide is still running out in the channel, and things are moving quickly downriver. But as the tide turns, it comes in at the banks first. It starts trickling up along the banks, so you have some things coming up while the main uh, channel is going down. I think that's uh, a metaphor for the Islamic uh, forces in the region uh, and for the emerging civil society that you saw, you know, uh, a glimmer of, uh, of light in the beginning of the Arab Spring. Those represent a different kind of force. They really believe in democracy and human rights, but they're not quite sure what that is or how you implement it in societies that haven't had it. But there is a strong commitment among the youth, and not only among the youth, among, you know, definitely aging uh, secularists as well, that's, that we've seen working in Iraq uh, or in Lebanon or elsewhere, and, there's a, and they have a real chance to make the future going on. So uh, we don't want to uh, lose uh, contact and solidarity with them, and they could well be, bring about uh, a better day. We remember 40 years ago, there were hardly any Islamists among the young generation. 
40 years from now, it's very likely that the tide will have turned and will be running up in the channel as well as along the banks. Well, uh, thank you very much, folks.